Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today we are going to talk about fear and paranoia and apocalypse and the Jeff Nichols 2011 thriller, Take Shelter. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to talk about how Take Shelter might help us think about life in the church and in the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Take Shelter might help us understand the lectionary passages for October 25th, the 21st Sunday after Pentecost. And finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we are reading or watching or following. So today we're going to talk about Take Shelter, which is the 2011 film from Jeff Nichols, also directed Mud and Midnight Special, the latter of which we have talked about on this show before. Nichols loves to work in these sort of modern Southern Gothic milieus, and Take Shelter is no different. It's the story of a husband and father named Curtis, played by Michael Shannon, living in small town Ohio. And Curtis begins to have visions of storms and other apocalyptic signs, and so decides to build an elaborate tornado shelter in his backyard. As he goes along, his wife Samantha, played by Jessica Chastain, begins to fear for him, as do others around him, that they begin to fear that he's inheriting the schizophrenia which uh, overtook his mom as well. So this is a, a hard and haunting movie. Shannon is so good at conveying the terror he legitimately feels about the world around him, that some huge, nasty thing is brewing. And it also feels like a prophetic movie for its understanding of the ways that fear and delusion and apocalypse all sort of occupy our imagination, especially our modern imagination. So I admit a deep love for this movie, even though I don't necessarily enjoy watching it. It certainly is sort of creepy and unearthing to watch. But Adam, this was your first time with Take Shelter, so I'm so curious to hear your thoughts. How did this movie lodge for you? And what did it spark in your theological imagination? I I quite like this movie. And I think like you, it, it, it isn't necessarily an easy watch. And this is not something that's going to help you escape whatever world you're trying to escape. And in many ways, it requires a sort of patience. But the patience, I think, is is rewarded in the watching of the movie. It It has a lot to say. And it's weaving together a number of themes that I think are really valuable to consider during this time in our lives. And so there, there are themes of parenthood, there are themes of mental illness, there are themes of, um, of, of, of um, the social uh, fabrics that we keep and how they are fraying and why they are fraying in the world. There's, there's questions and critiques about you know healthcare. There's a, a sense of like how do you how do you continue to create friendships in an honor shame society when 
when so much is being threatened with respect to the world around us, it, it has a lot to say. And I think we can go in a lot of different directions in having this conversation, Matt. But I, I think the one of its benefits is that it's able to wrap it in this sort of latent underlying fear that continues to terrorize Curtis. And what it does, and I think does well, is that it never explains kind of where that fear is coming from. Um, but it never really kind of explains the fear itself. If fear is it a fear of sort of apocalyptic cataclysm, or is it the fear of some sort of um, pan like global uh, pandemic that's going to alter the loved ones? It, it, it does such a really fascinating and good job of sort of gathering those, the irrationality of so much of the fears that sort of haunt us in the middle of the night. And in this way, it's not, it's not a horror movie, and it's not really even a thriller, but it kind of does exist close to those genres because what it's trying to capture, and what I think it does an effective job capturing, is that moment when you wake up from a dream that was terrible and you still are afraid. And you can't really remember why. And like any good horror movie, it takes something born out of real life that everyone can kind of relate to and tries to like grow it and, and make it even bigger. So what if that, that terror that you felt just continued? And that, that's, a, that's a great way to think about a horror movie, right? Like the, the terror that you have when you wake up from a terrible dream just keeps going. Um, and how that would affect your family, what that would cause you to do, the lengths that you would go to try and avoid having those particular dreams, um, all are at play here. Um, and then it's sort of wrapped in this nice little apocalyptic past, uh, like question, which is, is any of it real? Which is the question that we ask all our fears, right? Like, are these real fears? And that's, that's an increasingly difficult question to really answer. And, and for that reason, I think that this, this movie has a, a, a tone and a quality that's actually pretty unique within the wider corpus. And I think that uh, Jeff Nichols has, has happened upon something here. Um, it, it's, not going to, it's not going to like chase plot at tremendous speeds, but it, its slow burn of terror, I thought worked really well. What about you? I mean, so those are my initial thoughts. And I have, I mean, I have a whole file that we can talk about with respect to the sort of the apocalyptic side of this and the sort of male vulnerability that's um, kind of at the center of this movie and also ideas of, um, of prophecy and, um, and the, the buildup. And I, we're going to have to talk about the Lions Club scene at some point. But what are your initial thoughts as you rewatched it? Well, we've got to talk about the ending at some point, too, but maybe we bracket that and have a little bit of ending conversation um, at the close of this. Um, and, and so that because I imagine a lot of folks listening will not have seen this movie already, and I want to give them the chance to watch it without getting totally spoiled. Uh, I, I think it was really interesting going back to this movie in 2020. I, I think that I probably first saw this in 2015, 2016, something like that. And, uh, and, and, you know, the movie resists, I think, being boiled down to, to really simple allegory. But 
because it gives us the capacity to kind of you know part of the part of the thing that that you're grabbing on is like what if your worst latent nightmarish fear was real and what if you became convinced that it was real how would you then therefore act and i think in 2015 when i first saw this you know in in some ways the movie felt therefore like a kind of a, a, a elaborate metaphor for talking about something like climate change. Mm. Mm. So, you know, Curtis sees the storm that is coming and he can't convince anybody else to go along with it. And he actually muzzles himself for most of the right. film. He won't say right. what's happening because he's so convinced that no one is going to be able to hear him or understand him. No one's going to give him the benefit of the doubt no one's going to give him a solid reading and so he can't share what's going on so he just totally isolates and the only answers he can give are like it just has to be done we just have to build this thing like we just have to build this shelter the dog just has to go in the gate like it just has to happen because he's so convinced that this terrible thing is coming true and i found it read through the lens of something like um, something like climate change, which feels like the closest thing we have to a kind of commonly understood, quote unquote, apocalyptic event. Yeah, a cataclysm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, that it it felt, um, you, you know, you you felt sympathetic in this really profound, resonant way. And maybe that's a little bit of me. Like I used to work in sustainability and climate change advocacy, and it does occasionally, and it had occasionally felt like just yelling and ranting at a room that was unable to be to hear you or give you a sympathetic read yeah. um and fascinatingly to me watching this film in 2020 uh felt so much different i think partly because at least in the ecosystem of media that i hang out in climate change is no longer a thing that like I feel like I have to yell to a bunch of people who aren't going to hear it. But also we see all the other allegories for what if your worst fear was true playing out in different ways. So what if the film is not an allegory for climate change? What if it's now an allegory for QAnon? What what if um what if Curtis has been given the gift of seeing the storm coming, but it's not like a climate change storm. Now it's like the international conspiracy of Pizzagate, whatever, whatever, whatever's. And, and he's still burdened with the difficulty of that knowledge. Like, I think then, then I read the film so much differently. It's, it's not, I, I don't find myself then empathizing with him, but I feel profoundly sorry for him. And, and you and you begin to see like, oh, I, this man is really sick. And how, how do we get him help instead of seeing like, oh, this man is really burdened. Yeah. Why can't the community give him a listen? And I, that was a really interesting turn for me uh, to, to, to be able to read that film in those two different ways. And I think it speaks well to the... Um, the simplicity of it and also the openness to it that it's Nichols is not 
just doesn't want to hone in on a specific allegory. He wants to live in that emotional place of like, what does it do to you psychologically? Um, and, and what does it do to you? Um, how does it eat at you to be able to exist in that really difficult space where something yeah, is I true and you can't convince anyone? Totally. I think that that's part of the, the, the value of the movie is that it's not going to foreclose on any meaning. Um, and if you are going to, um, then you're not going to give it the sort of full weight of its vision. And um, and I, I think y your experience or your relationship with this movie is um, is a thoughtful one, in part because you can empathize and have compassion on Curtis. But the the apocalypse, or you know, like a, a cataclysmic event, is is terrifying for some and a source of hope for others, right? And both of those true are in are, are true in Curtis's life, right? And as if you but you have to go some different places, right? Like so on the one hand it's terrifying because Curtis at the on the one hand is is experiencing these visions and these dreams and it's forcing him into to make decisions that are ultimately against the self-interest of him and his family. Um, that his pursuit of building this shelter is ultimately going to undermine the goals of his family, namely the health and well-being of his daughter. Uh, and that's um, and to, 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 to watch that and to see the ways and the great lengths that he goes to to try and secure everyone gives you a, a sense both of like the true fear that he has, right? Which is on the one hand, the very beginning of the movie, Dewart tells him, you're, you have a good, you're a good man. You have a good life. Yeah, really critical conversation, right? I mean, this, the whole yeah. thing only works because we buy the conceit that Curtis's life is a good life and he's not able to say that. And so you have to have it kind of imposed on you, which is why the, I think the friend has to be able to say, your life is really good. And it's it's from that position yeah. of like, if I have a good life and, and with the with the privilege that he has, such as it is, I think part of that is what allows those fears to fester. What happens if this thing that I have can be taken away? Well, and that's right. And and so, but you know, the apocalypse, like, the hope in the coming apocalypse is, is the other side of that coin. And this is what this is the other thing that Curtis feels. I mean, I don't think he fully believes that he has a good life. If you are destined to descend into madness of schizophrenia and be pulled away from your family as his mother was pulled away from him, the hope is that these dreams actually correspond to something real. Because it would be an indication that he doesn't actually have, he isn't going to be pulled away from his family. And that, in, in fact, what he's doing is actually something very good. He's, he's securing safety and security for his family so that he'll never be taken away from them. And, and Nichols does a really, I think, a, a really stellar job showing you just the sort of trauma that Curtis bears, but doesn't show it to you all at once, right? It's not in one piece of ex exposition where he tells you all about his terrible life, but you start to, you hear like, well, have you, your mother and then slowly you begin to see that his mother was um was removed from him and then about like i don't know two-thirds of the way, way through the movie you hear that his dad died in the last year 
that, that there is another moment of loss and pain and trauma that has sort of exacerbating is triggering some things. You, you get the sense that his, his daughter was able to hear at one point, but through some, some disease law hearing, um, you're getting, you're slowly getting all of these disappointments that are parceled out in his life. Um, not to mention the, the, the fact that he then finally sees a counselor and that counselor is a source of uh, with some real empathy and compassion in his life, willing to listen to him in a way that he can't speak to anybody. And then the social safety net phrase again, and she like, it was actually truly heartbreaking in that moment where there's a new counselor who comes and is like, well, why don't you tell me what's going on? Well, your, your counselor just got a, is going to pursue something at, at Ohio State. And it's like another source of loss. And, and like, and as he is trying to sort of wrestle with all of that, he, I think that there is within him, alongside the great fear that the apocalypse is coming, a great hope that it would. Because it would confirm that, that he's not actually recreating everything that's happened to him. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I think your, your, your notation about the, the brokenness of the constellation of care that he receives reminds me that not that far buried under the surface of this film is a very basic, decent argument for, um, if not universal health care, then something that would uh, not tether health care to employment. Um, I, you know, at, at a critical moment in this film, he loses his job and the my, my mind began to spin of like, he loses his job, he loses his benefits, he loses access to like the, the psychiatric and counseling care that he desperately needs, which only will spiral him further and further down. Uh, if there was ever somebody who needed access to benefits and coverage precisely during a period of unemployment, here you have your test subject. Yeah, so, I, yeah that is yeah, not the point yeah, Jeff Nichols is trying to make, but I couldn't help but grab it. Yeah, but it it is i think nichols is getting at the ways in which the the social safety nets are strained and they because they can't fully explain this or neither can they embrace it right like they can't they can't fold this in because everyone is living too close to the knife's edge right like and to to be able to absorb the needs of this one person at this time alongside the the constellation of a hundred other needs that everybody else is facing is just too much. Um, and without outside support, you, you, you're going to get the Lions Club scene. So let's talk about this for a second. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. And that's the Lions Club scene is where the vision of community in this film really comes to bear. I mean, this is not a movie that puts more than three characters on screen very often. And then there's this, <laughs> and, and then there's this one scene which felt like it was ripped straight out of some small church ministry handbook. I mean, it, it's the Lions Club dinner. It could easily be the after church potluck. It, 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 right. is, it is in what looks like a church fellowship hall. There are fried oysters. People have argued about which sides to bring. And the reason that people go to it, I mean, the reason that his wife wants to go is that she wants to do something normal. And I feel like that is a really critical expression of desire that it's, it, it's, she doesn't say I want to go because I want to see X and X friends or have X and X uh, social encounters, but there's something about the pretense of 
being in a moment that is that is not um, that that that, that yeah. is on that knife's edge but is pretending not to be and and to me it hints that like everybody in that room in their own particular way is on some particular knife's edge we know a couple of them we don't know the rest of them presumably they are not quite as eruptive as where curtis is but that like everybody there is putting on a face to be able to do something normal because underneath is something more terrifying and then it blows up yeah and yeah and then it blows up and it blows up for a variety of things i mean there's a sort of um it's a crucible of sorts and you're 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 gonna find a reaction i do in any type of community that's bearing too much and and can't actually make room for the vulnerable to be honest they they haven't created the the systems by which um we can bear our humiliation and our shame in a way and still feel loved and cared for um and what you see is that you have these two men and they're both like so tremendously wounded one who is 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 trying to secure himself while his dreams are telling him that everyone around him is actively seeking to harm him you know and and in an attempt to try and find some measure of space or try and find some individuation from that it it is seen and regarded as like a tremendous betrayal in part because everyone is in, has so much need and you can't actually live in a life like that without the surrounding community to help hold you up and so as curtis betrays Stuart by like sort of releasing him from his team at work Stuart is has a shame that he feels like he's he can't he can't help figure out and and curtis has been like slowly has been apologizing for his visions from the very very beginning to everybody because he knows that it's unreasonable but he can't even as he apologizes he can't help but feel like all of it so acutely and so this crucible of this moment where the community comes together utterly unable to like actually help the people who are who are so traumatized and so much in pain you put them in the same place and what looks like a fight between two guys turns into a sort of like prophecy straight from Ezekiel. <laughs> like it, it, it has the tone and the tenor, not just of someone who is is slowly going mad, but of someone who is delighting in the fact that they get to tell everyone that a storm is coming. Yeah, because he's been holding it in out of a desire to be able to maintain some version of those relationships he, he doesn't want to ostracize everybody by telling because he knows if he says what he's really seeing that folks will um will, will abandon him and but once that scene once the fight happens he knows that he's already abandoned and at that point why not just let it out and 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 speak your truth it does, you know, yeah. th there is something there about, like, gosh, I, you know, I want this town to have, like, the, the, the small group men's breakfast where they could actually share their feelings every once in a while and not 
uh, and, and not just have to have it bottled all in. At the same time, like, it's not just that he has awkward feelings, right? It's that he's seeing these incredibly prophetic prophecies or he's totally succumbing to schizophrenia or something. It's not just, like... Yeah. It's not just he feels shame. It's it's profound um, and and thorough. Yeah, and I, and in that way, I wonder, like, I wonder if it's not a sort of accurate picture of if we think about the prophets a little bit, um, because there is a sense that like to receive a vision, to receive a, a sense of the world, that that to become the oracle is is not a pleasant thing. <laughs> you know, for, for as much as the word prophecy in the North American church has become synonymous with sort of politically active, I'm not sure that that's a, the, the, the accurate picture of the prophet in scripture. I just like, and not to mention the fact that I think in North America, the, the word prophet is also a, a sort of well, a way to self-promote. And here you see someone who's sort of like dealing with something that they have seen, that they consider, that they feel, that they are imagining. And the truth is, as it does in scripture, that doesn't come with credentials. Like, it doesn't come with a way where everybody's like, oh, that's a prophet. Like, I mean, in some parts of scripture, in some other parts, you know, there are core prophets. It's a little bit more, you know, a little bit more complicated than the way I'm making it sound. But... There are those moments where where Amos comes out and and says, "Look, I'm not, I'm just a dresser of sycamore trees, right? Like I'm just I I I don't have the qualifications to make people listen to me, but that doesn't mean that I don't have some measure of truth to impart. And because I and that truth that I'm trying to impart, like that stuff really matters. It it to not have a way to consider how how people think about truth uh, or, or how they may communicate their truth and still be loved and cared for by a community is, a, I, I think, a major question of uh, of the church right now. Yeah, and I mean, of course, the and, and the, the catch-22 scripturally is that, like, none of those kind of non-court prophets, I mean, that your Ezekiel's, your Amos's, your Jeremiah's, like, for the most part, are not recognized as speaking God's word until after the thing they're warning about already happens. <laughs> right, right, right. And, you know, it is a redactive and editorial move in some ways to decide these guys were prophetic because the thing that they were promising God would do, then God did. Uh, and th that uh, does kind of complicate the way that we talk about, for example, as you mentioned, kind of quote-unquote prophetic preaching, it certainly complicates Curtis's life. You one can imagine that, you know, in, in a reality in which all of these storms actually do come true, that the community is going to go back later and go, you know, that Curtis guy was really on to something. And, but, but, you know, it may not be much to his benefit by that point. It's such a hard conundrum, right? Because on, on the one hand, like, this, this is how the world works. I, so there's a quote I wrote down when, when 
when I was watching this, he says, we never get to know a mystery by unveiling and analyzing it. We only get to know it by carefully guarding the mystery as mystery. But how can it be carefully guarded, this mystery of proximity, without even being known? For the sake of this knowledge, there must always be another who comes home for the first time and tells of the mystery. And, and this is a movie about someone who comes home for the first time. And, and all of the ways in which that, like the burden of that, in, in the same way that the burden of that showed up in Ezekiel. But in, in like in, in Ezekiel's apocalyptic visions and the hope, I, and I think if we're just going to, if I can go fully theological here, is that like the prophecies of Ezekiel, you, they become the foundation upon which further prophecy is built, right? Like that, that others dreamers can come in and find a sense of this, right? Like, I think this is so important because, um, because Ezekiel and Ezekiel 40 and through, you know, that that vision of the New Jerusalem that's going to show up on a mountaintop then becomes the template by which John on Patmos provides a new vision of the New Jerusalem and alters it to some new audience and to some new group. Right. Like and and there's a there's there is a way to create some measure of community by which they can do this. And I think uh, I, I thought about that Heidegger quote. And the other thing I thought about when I was reading this was that um, is that. Uh, the way we think about madness and the way that it operates is so conditioned in our culture. And maybe we'll get into the Foucaultian side of this a little bit later, but that there's this amazing moment in Alice Walker's In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, um, where she's recalling the black women of the South, who she's, she says were mules of the world. And, but they had this creative spirit that thirsted for expression. And because no one would listen to their dreams and no one would listen to them, it always sort of showed up within the culture is madness and madness when it surfaces at least into, into walker's vision is because there is something latent that's not being able given the price to be expressed um and so she says they dreamed dreams that no one knew not even themselves in any coherent fashion and saw visions no one could understand they wandered or sat about the countryside crooning lullabies to ghosts and drawing the mother of christ in charcoal on carved house walls they forced their minds to desert their bodies and their striving spirits sought to rise like frail whirlwinds from the hard red clay. And when those frail whirlwinds fell and scattered particles upon the ground, no one mourned. Instead, men lit candles to celebrate the emptiness that remained, as people do who enter a beautiful but vacant space to resurrect a god. Our mothers and grandmothers, some of them, moving to music not yet written, and they waited. Yeah, I... I think about that stuff a lot, Matt, with just like, how do we, how do we make room for the mysteries that we won't ever understand told by people who we just assume were mad? So with that, I think we should talk about the ending for a minute here. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, if, if you haven't seen the movie yet, please go watch it now and then, and skip ahead a little bit and we'll come back and talk about lectionary scripture in a few minutes. But, uh, <laughs> So at the end of this film, first of all, the a, a psychiatrist makes, I think, a very bad medical proposal, which is go take a vacation and then come back and be in intensive therapy uh, and treatment, which feels like if you need that <laughs> level of treatment, you probably should not be on your own to go take a vacation first. But let's set that aside. So they take their long planned vacation. They are now at Myrtle Beach. They're playing at the beach. 
the daughter is out in the sand and she looks up and she begins to see something like storm clouds out over the ocean uh and Curtis sees them too. He gathers her up. He heads back towards the condo that they're renting. And then in a critical moment, uh, his wife emerges from the condo and clearly also herself sees these storm clouds. And she puts out her hand and she start and she gets these like super oily raindrops on her hand. Uh, and he looks at her as if to say, do you see it? And she gives this nod. Um, at which point the family kind of unites around seeing this storm with no particular hint of, like, what they will do next. But we cut to credits. Uh, and this obviously is a huge moment. It either says that the visions he's been having this whole time of the storms themselves have been true, that this is... The, the genuine prophetic burden some major storm is about to hit or that his the, the delusion that he has been having this whole time is contagious and that it is now spread to his wife and daughter the daughter perhaps not as surprisingly she if this is the genetic marker of schizophrenia it could be going from through, through the family slightly more surprising that it would go to his wife but that now they are all seeing through his eyes together. Uh, first, um, just for the record, Jeff Nichols has been asked about this and um, has, has said in interviews that he knows exactly what happened at the end of that movie, but really enjoys that everybody else is um, wrestling with it. So uh, uh, he clearly wrote it to a point, but I'm not sure what that point is. Uh, I'm curious to you as to kind of how you experienced the last couple of minutes of that and what it did to the overall experience for you. Um, yeah, so there, uh, there's one more interpretation that I'm going to add to the, to the two that you've already provided. Um, this movie goes out of its way to not signal when a vision is actually happening. And you don't know it's a vision until something very out of the ordinary starts happening and then he wakes up. I want to I want to suggest that maybe it's also the third option is that it's it's another vision. And yet in this vision there is a portion of his family unit that's been redeemed. They're not estranged from him any longer. And in that way it is a sort of sign of of eventual hope, right? Like he's not cured, still has a long way to go. But in these visions, he's no longer trying to, he's no longer being attacked by his wife or having to save his daughter in quite the same way any longer. So in your right, imagination, they're, they're, the next thing that happens here is that he wakes up in a hospital bed in treatment somewhere or in his home or something like that, that, yeah. th that this, this entire sequence yeah. is another one of his dream sequences. I mean, that's, that's the, you know, Nichols in the filmmaking never signals via camera music or anything else when a dream is happening you just you just get it so but i all of them make sense right like so on the one hand you have to take them seriously right like because sometimes when the prophet's the prophet <laughs> like and if we if we don't take them seriously then you know shame on us like they were saying what was true and we just refused to believe them on the other hand um it's it's contagious is um that's the that's the terrifying part of this. 
Right, and and, and right. I, I I do think I think the difficult part with with your third way interpretation is the scene yeah. is 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 the it's, big, a, it's, a, it's one of hope, right? And, and I'm it's sure. Um, I mean, I think I think the um the beats that open the 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 actual storm that comes in the last half hour of this film that sends them into the storm shelter include this bit where his daughter runs into the road and what what we are led to believe is that she is is seeing the flock of birds that is coming yeah. that that he has been seeing this whole time and so there's a beat there and it's not confirmed right because she right, can't right, speak right, right. and so like we can't quite get confirmation but it is heavily suggested in what is clearly grounded as a sequence that is actually happening in real life that she is seeing part of this vision and i think that that to me is the seed that gets to okay if she's in it and now the three of them are all in it whatever it is uh, at the end but i I think you know and I, i i i'm not sure that the point is to figure out which of those interpretations is quote unquote like the truth of it but I, I, I the right one yeah. right yeah yeah um and you know the, the the bigger point is the stuff we've been talking about the cost of it all through this no matter what i i i think that there's there's value in the sort of handing the the inheritance part right because i think one of the deep fears of curtis is that he has inherited this sickness this madness from his mother and that it's, it just lies latent inside of you until it decides to start eating you from the inside, like from the inside of your head. And um, and given that, that he knows what that does to the people, to the kids, that he's he's trying to sort of like, he's, he's trying all he can to shield his daughter from that, to, to try and make sure that if something has been handed down to him, can he shield his and protect his daughter from that. Um, that said, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it was an evocative ending, and I, it, I can't. It was kind of telegraphed at some point. Like you're just kind of, not just in the way that it was done, but you. This is not the type of movie where you're going to have a tidy ending. This is this is a, this is a movie that's going to leave you feeling um, a bit unmoored. Well, and, you know, to go back to my, like, very crude series of allegories earlier, watching this before, if the, if the, if the crude allegory is climate change and he is the misunderstood prophet, then the ending, it, when I first saw this, had a sort of catharsis to it, right? See, I told you he was right all along. There it is. There's finally the proof. Uh, and watching it again now, um, and, and, now, if, if QAnon is my bad allegory for it, then it's like, oh, man, see how the, like, delusion is contagious. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, that's, where I, that's what I think the sort of the beauty of the film is, is living in the, the, the tension of that and the way that it invites you and pushes you away at the same time. Let me say how grateful we are for our partnership with Christian Century. And the good work that they're doing right now, uh, Barbara Brown Taylor has a new article up coming from her forthcoming book. It's pretty good about um, what it's like to be a guest preacher. I enjoyed reading it. Um, 
But this is one of those um, quarterly issues that they do at the Century where they give you a whole bunch of book recommendations for everyone. And I like those ones because it, it generally signals to me some some academic thinking and some work that I wouldn't have otherwise known was coming out, you know, curated by some smart people. So I encourage you to go and check that out, see what they're doing. If you're listening and don't yet subscribe to the Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam, let's talk about preaching. We got text for this upcoming lectionary Sunday, which is October 25th. We are deep into the well of ordinary time at this point. We've got a final farewell to Moses as Deuteronomy closes. We've got some rich Levitical commandments to love neighbor and pursue justice. We've got the happy tree of Psalm 1, who just loves reading some law. We've got some words from 1 Thessalonians chosen to help with stewardship season and some religious sparring of Jesus and the Pharisees at the end of Matthew's gospel. Adam, tell me, as you look at these lectionary texts, no no, I, no Ezekiel or Jeremiah here to help us along, <laughs> um, but no, what, did, what no, did you see that sparked no, connection for you? John here, yeah. I mean, I, funny enough, I am I am preaching on Revelation 22 this uh, this weekend. And so I was like, wow, maybe I can talk about that. No, here's what I want to talk about. Um, this is a, a, a movie about inheritance in many ways, which is how do you, what, what gets passed on to you? And these, one of the central relationships with this movie, and it's mostly alluded to, but, um, and you, you get little hints of it, is this relationship between a mother and a son. Um, Curtis's mother is, is schizophrenic and has lived in, um, in a hospital since he was 10 years old. Um, she was gone. She left him in a car one day and didn't go back up for for another week. You know, and she was in Kentucky when she was found. the The residual trauma of that mental illness in his life and how that affected him as a young person is kind of written and alluded to over and over again in the movie. And um, and I I think that this is just a good opportunity to consider what's been laid on us what, like like what what do we just inherit by virtue of being us and how are we able to bear it and moreover like how does this inheritance seek to control and lead us and what's it going to look like to have a healthy relationship with it to all the things that have been passed down and this comes in a lot of different directions i think in 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 life and in ministry but for the purposes of of the podcast right now the this shows up, I think, in that end of Deuteronomy, right? Which is, you have what is these the final eulogy for Moses, at least in this book. And the way that it talks about Moses is is sort of overwhelmingly glowing. And then it makes mention that that the mantle has been passed on to Joshua, and Joshua will now lead these people into the promised land. And I could watch this movie and read that passage and not think about Joshua and all of the things that he's had to inherit by virtue of coming after Moses, by virtue of, in many ways, being the progeny, at least from a leadership standpoint, of Moses, that he is the one that now has to not just figure out what's, how to live as Joshua, as a leader in this moment, but how do you do it while also being the, the figurative child of Moses, because Moses is a complicated figure. On the one hand, Deuteronomy is going to want to say, like, look, he's, he's, there's been no prophet better than Moses. Moses was uh, at the height. And yet, 
the very fact and the very reason that Moses is going to only be able to peer into the promised land and die is because of his uh, lack of faithfulness. And so you you get a, I feel from this passage and trying to figure out how do how do you live as Joshua when you are bound to inherit the good and the bad from the people who came before. Maybe this is the the point in the in the conversation where we should have brought in someone who had to like move into a position in ministry after someone who had been there for 35 years that was like deeply beloved <laughs> to, to tell us like wh- how does that play out and what kind of burdens do you have to shoulder in that moment it's a cool interpretive lens for this film and and i think it's you know it's one of those things that nichols is incredibly subtle with you just have the one scene with mom you just have the one offhanded mention of dad's death and yet it's so clearly occupying so much of his imagination through this. How do I, what is this mantle? Yeah. And, 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 how, and how do I take it up and how do I set it down? And the strain of the brothers, right? Yeah, but sure, 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 yeah, sure. The, the strain of the brothers in that, in that scene too gives you, it allows you to triangulate what, the, what has been laid in both of their lives yeah. by virtue of this trauma. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, like, the, it, like, the like, the uh, like kind of, weak hug at the end of that scene just kind of lays me out Ugh. right yeah it's really it's really brutal and their inability i mean like with most of the men in this film their inability to actually speak to each other in any real vulnerable way is 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 there but their their inability to articulate the burdens that they feel is part of the problem and i and i think uh yeah and i just i don't know i think about that with respect to to the lives the lives that i i come into contact with so often and eventually like eventually people have to come to terms with their parent you know and whether it's in in my experience lately it's a lot of people coming to terms with their parents as they die um a lot of people in my congregation whose whose parents are not well and their that relationship as positive or as negative as it is um at at death it kind of demands a reckoning yeah that's that's those are some of my initial musing i mean i think that there's a sort of like um there's something else to to talk about with this movie with respect to how paul has to sort of authenticate his himself in the thessalonians passage right where he's like i i tell you i'm 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 not here to steal your money i'm not here to to tell you what to do in this world. I'm, you know, I, I do this at actually against my self-interest. And, um, and it's just a reminder of like how hard it is to try and figure out how to get listened to and how, how deeply hard that is for people who are experiencing some level of mental illness, that there's always an overwhelming feeling like they are not being heard. And, um, and you see it in this movie too. Um, and so how do you how do you build authenticity i think is a, a a question that i've not fully answered in my life so what about you i am thinking about something that uh dr bruce mccormick said in my systematic theology class in seminary <laughs> where he said something to the effect of this idea that Christian theology is fundamentally a rational, deductive enterprise, but it just starts 
from an irrational proposition. If you, you start with the irrational proposition that Jesus is Lord and risen, uh, and then you do this deductive work to figure out what the cosmos is in light of that fact. Uh, and I, I've been thinking about that. I think about that in light of this Matthew text where Jesus tells the, um, where, where, where Jesus tells the religious leaders uh, that um, on these two commandments, you know, the love God, love your neighbor, that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, as if to say, start here, and then everything else flows naturally from it. And, and I, I think this movie is kind of an interesting exercise in deductive reasoning, because as we've pointed out, <laughs> right, he, Curtis's character acts in an incredibly rational way. He makes incredibly rational decisions based on his knowledge of his community and his knowledge of his needs and his family's needs once, once he commits to the proposition that a giant apocalyptic storm is coming. And he commits to that proposition. He knows nobody is going to believe him, so he can't tell anybody. And also he knows it's incredibly threatening to his family, and so he behaves accordingly. He is a rational actor coming from an irrational perspective, um, which describes pretty well how I was taught to think about systematic theology. And so <laughs> I'm just wrestling with, like, is there a way, and this is, you know, I'm taking on a very, very large fish and I just want to do it in 15 seconds because there's no way to do it in less than, in, in, in less than many, many years, if not that. Like, is there a way to approach our theology that would be somewhat more complicated <laughs> and, somewhat, right. and, and, and somewhat more breathable so that uh, we can account for not just the the needs of deductive logics but also the needs of real people and that's the and, and i think that's part of the complexity this film offers uh and i and i and i'm using it to push a little bit against the i, I think what can be an instinct towards trivialization and simplification that comes in exegeting this matthew passage I'll honor to Bruce McCormick. I, I, I think eventually the rationality hits its walls, right? Like that the mystery, like that you land back in the mystery part of things and the unknowing part of things and, and the apophatic of, of, of the world. And that's what I like about this movie is that like it does, like for the most part, for the most part, the world does fall into place with critical thinking until it doesn't. Right. Like and and that until it doesn't has to be given some measure of space in our assessment of experience. And um, not just because there's a sort of epistemic humility that's necessary to sort of live faithfully, I would suggest, but but because that, that if we are going to begin from a place of an irrational premise that that then we think logically or, or rationally about, inevitably some that irrational premise is going to seed some other moment of irrationality um, that 
that the premise itself will bear the fruit. And I think that's by design, actually. I think that that's part of the, the joy of it all, right? Like this is why, and that's not just unique to Christianity, that's, that's unique to any group who are thinking intentionally and critically and thoughtfully about the divine, right? That you can find um, Islamic scholars whose work with respect to how they interpret Quran, like to be so intricate and elegant in its logic and its fastidiousness with understanding what's going on, while also affirming you know, Sufi wisdom that the final rung that you gather when you come to an understanding of God is bewilderment, right? Like that, that, that even as we work this stuff out and we like, we have to make some room for that little thing. And that's why I, I like, I, I like that in that, in that Matthew passage, Jesus answers their question, but then like responds with another question that doesn't have an immediate answer. That is kind of mystical and, and weird, which is like, well, what do you think about the son of man? <laughs> and they're all like, well, who knows anything about that? That's, that's outside the scope of what we can sort of reason here. And I think that that's part of it too. All right, Adam, it is time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So hit me up. What is your postlude for the week? Okay, so last week I talked about the hundred, um, the list of 100 important Radiohead songs or best Radiohead songs that I read. Now I'm going to give you another list. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's an anxious time in my life. So I read a lot of articles that have, that have long lists that I can disagree with. And here's one that I really disagree with. Adam, has found, Adam has found 2014 BuzzFeed. Congratulations. I know. I am like, I'm back. You know, every, what's old is new. Have you, have, you, do you, uh, have you also figured out which Harry Potter house you belong in using a series of internet yes. quizzes? Yes, of course. Um, Christy thinks I'm a Hufflepuff, but it's clear that I'm Ravenclaw. Um, the This is... Richard Brody, who I, I typically enjoy his, his film criticism in, uh, in The New Yorker, wrote an article called The 62 Films That Shaped Documentary Filmmaking. It's, it's not a bad list per se. It's just so wrong. It's just dumb. <laughs> like the, the films themselves are not worth it. It's not that they're not worth your attention. They are. They're, it's filled with some really important films and some very good films. And yet, to title 62 films that shape documentary filmmaking, you actually have to, like, you know, like honor films that actually shaped documentary filmmaking. <laughs> and these, I, I have no idea the criteria he used for these lists, it, it, but I had to make my own list because this, is, this matters to me. Because documentary is, as, as a genre of film is, is very, very important to me. And so, here are the things that were left off the list, save one that needs to be on that need to be on the list. Um, that I commit to everyone that they should all go and watch because each of them had has had I would say tremendous influence on the genre. Um, Helen Kelly, Helen Keller and her story. This is a this is a documentary from the fifties, um, late in Helen Keller's life that that um, that basically created in many ways, the sort of biopic documentary in the, in the 50s. Um, the Last Waltz by Martin Scorsese is, is the basic template for all music documentaries. Salesman, which is the, I would say, the sort of North American uh, iteration of the cinema verite style of, 
of documentary filmmaking, The Mills Brothers. It's better than Grey Gardens. Don't watch Grey Gardens. Roger and me, Michael Moore has become himself late in life, but Roger and me, when it hit, like did political advocacy as documentary as documentary in a way that was unseen at the time. But then Blue Line by Errol Morris basically is the urtext for serial and every crime podcast after it. Um, Shoah, which is on Brody's list, is um, is a, a, a marveling act of filmmaking that is absolutely punishing, but necessary watching if you want to consider the Holocaust and its moral ethical implications on our world. American Movie, which is is so good, and um, it belongs in that sort of sense of of trying to understand like the weirdness of America and. Um, and then more recently, The Art of Killing, Josh Oppenheimer's movie has style in ways that are that that's brand new. Uh, when the Levees Broke, which is a Spike Lee movie about Katrina, um, I think is one of the, the best sort of um, multi-part uh, documentary filmmaking. A camera person with relative 2016 documentary um, about someone who was always behind the camera. And then it's a documentary of her documenting things. OJ Made in America, Mind the Gap. These are all, I think, new wave documentaries that are going to change things. You should all go and watch them. That's my post loop. I think you need, uh, I mean, I get Salesman. I think you need Gimme Shelter if I was going to pick a Males Brothers documentary, and um, which I, I think that is a really critical film for documentary and also like the time in which it exists. There's also totally. no, there's also no Penna Baker on your list, and I think that's an oversight. I'm just going to put that <laughs> totally. out there. So, I, I also I, feel like I, I, I also feel like saying that there, and this is not a critique to you. This is a critique to the article. Sixty-two is too specific a number for a list like that. Like you, you have to say fifty or a hundred or whatever, because then you can justify why the fifty-first one wasn't there. But if you say sixty-two, <laughs> why not one more? Why not sixty-three? You gotta. That's not. That's not a decent conceit for a list. Is all I'm saying. Agreed. My my one retort is that I, I only have one room for one music documentary, and so I couldn't do Gimme Shelter. Though well, it like, but the single moment of watching the Stones watch their con yes. concert is better than any single moment in the Last Waltz. Yeah, Gimme Shelter is that, a better movie than Last Waltz, and I will die on that hill. Um, but okay. that's that, that's I understand that it is not the popular hill. Uh, Okay, I want to talk without... I just want to observe a very strange pop culture moment that we are in, which is that uh, <laughs> that half of the television shows that I have watched and or movies I have seen over the last 20 years are currently engaged in cast reunions to benefit political campaigns. Yes. Um, so many. And Good for them. 80 to 90% of them being orchestrated by the Wisconsin Democratic Party. So, like, hat tip to those guys and their Rolodex. So, the, I mean, the first major one we had was the Princess Bride cast reunion, like, virtual cast reunion that raised millions of dollars. I, I don't have a complete list, but my quick pass, I know Veep has done this. I know Parks and Recreation has or is doing this. Um, I know a, a kind of open invite of Star Trek cast members has done this, although I don't think it's just one particular Star Trek show. Um, uh, Hamilton is getting ready to do this. Uh, Spinal Tap. Um, and Spinal Tap done one. I missed that one. Yeah, they're going to do that. Rob Reiner 
you know, was in the Princess Bride one, and so they got it back with Christopher Guest and Rob Reiner, and are like, well, this could work for Spinal Tap. And then, um, and then just this week, as we were recording, the West Wing one dropped on HBO, which is not, which is nonpartisan. They're doing it for some Get Out the Vote initiative, though. Honestly, in 2020, I feel like it's hard to draw a line between Get Out the Vote and <laughs> um, partisan politics, uh, but that's a different topic. Fair enough. Uh, and what I find fascinating about this is, like, all of these texts, all of these, with the possible exception of Princess Bride, though it's not far off, like, they all come from the same kind of liberal moral formation canon. Like, like <laughs> my, like, my political and cultural identity as an actor in the universe is shaped to some degree by Christianity and to some degree by a sort of Western white canon of classical texts and to some degree by parks and recreation, Hamilton, Star Trek, and the West wing. Like they're all sort of of a piece. And, and so I'm not surprised that they're all kind of going for this moment. I mean, I think they've realized they might as well. And here's a thing we can do. And I haven't watched all of it, but the Bradley Whitford intro monologue to the West wing reunion is kind of interesting where he's like, some people are going to think this is really obnoxious and what the heck are we doing up here? And we think, well, we're ready. We're, we're willing to risk being really obnoxious if it means that one more person votes. I'm like, okay, that's kind of an interesting argument. I'll take that. But it has uh-huh. led me. It has. It has led me on this thing of like, what are the next texts in that canon of liberal moral formation that should show up for uh, political and GOTV fundraisers? What am I expecting to drop? <laughs> and and I'm, I'm curious if you have entries into this. That I mean. I think what's going to and, and, um, and sort of the, the obvious one in some ways is the Simpsons, but that has been going on for so long and is so immutable that I'm not sure how you would pin it down. I, I was wondering about like a Royal Tenenbaums cast get together. I feel like that might be somewhat adjacent to this. Um, it's not quite as centered. Cheers, 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 and Fraser. Can we Fra- get Cheers and Fraser? Cheers like, and Fraser. I think would, would would work pretty well. I was thinking a little bit. I mean, it's it's closer to the Veep end than the West Wing end, but I think in a little bit about a Deadwood cast reunion. Um, just, well, Seinfeld, right? Like Seinfeld and Friends are the gets, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're but they're not. Those texts aren't quite as engaged in like character moral character formation uh, as. As, right, as, right, right, right. So that's that's anyway. I I would be curious for your uh, suggestions as to what great liberal moral formation texts and civic virtue texts. Um, certainly, this canon is a very white canon as well for the most part. But what what is out there that has not yet reunited for a cause? Um, not that they're in my rolodex, but I'm curious what's left, and would love to hear from you all. All right, I think that about wraps up our show for today. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes, come to the show page, discuss with, how, with us how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at Sunday Morning Matinee. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century, to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. The music today was composed by Bobby Breckerhoff. Big thanks to him, the fan, Fried Oyster. Thanks, Matt. Adam, I figured it out. What? <laughs> The 25th anniversary Les Mis cast album. We need a, we need, a we, we need a Les Mis cast reunion to raise money for the Wisconsin Democratic Party. It's another couple million bucks in the bank, man. That's that's that one. I mean, 
Didn't they? They have something like that, right? Like probably the somewhere. P on PBS. Probably somewhere. They just put, <laughs> they just press play, and let it go. Thanks, Adam. Let it go. <laughs> Watch the money roll in. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thank <laughs> you.